Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I'm Jordan. With me is Jared. How's it going, Jared? I'm Jared, and I am doing well. Thank you. <laughs> he said that because I just called myself Jared. Again, I swear I know my name. Anyways, <laughs> today oh. we're going to be fielding some more questions for atheists uh, because they're deep and insightful and definitely not because it's pretty easy for us to do and slip in between harder topics. Definitely yeah. not. Well, we also picked a video that wasn't common floating around and all atheists were responding to because, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, you kind of get bored hearing the same answers, the same questions over, right? So They are kind of similar questions, but uh, we're going to be responding to a gentleman who runs a show called a Jigsaw's Guide to a Jigsaw Guide to Life. His name's Alex McClellan. He's a Christian apologist. He's got some good content, looks like, but he's not super popular. So uh could be a new one. I doubt any of you are the 136 people that have seen the video. So there you go. And we, as a small channel with not very many viewers, want to support other small channels with yep. not very many e- viewers. So even if they don't agree with us. Yep. But before we get into that course we've got a fallacy for you the fallacy of the day today is my favorite fallacy the fallacy fallacy mm. fallacy 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 so the fallacy fallacy is basically saying that if an argument is fallacious its conclusion is therefore false right so mm-hmm. super simple um just because you have a fallacious argument doesn't mean you can't you can't have a true conclusion that Right. It just means that the way they got there is not good. <laughs> exactly. Uh, an example of this would be if John is Amish, he would have a beard. John has a beard. Therefore, John is Amish. And that is a fallacious argument. Unlike most of the fallacies covered, this is actually a formal fallacy. So it's like a for real legit fallacy. Yeah, it's we called, got a syllogism. <laughs> yeah, because it's a syllogism. It's called the affirmation of the consequent. And Aristotle said it's bad. So it's definitely bad. Uh, but maybe like John is Amish. I don't know. Like, I don't know, John, who knows? Like he could be Amish, but you wouldn't be able to get there by virtue of the argument you just heard. Right. Uh, and you'll see this all the time, particularly on internet discourse between people who like to be pedantic, you know, they'll say, oh, you committed this fallacy and then assume like, okay, that's it. We're done. Like you committed a fallacy. Therefore you're wrong. You know, newsflash humans get things wrong all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, and just because the way they got there doesn't mean you should just throw out the baby with the bathwater. Maybe you want to help them parse yeah. through their arguments and then reevaluate their conclusions. So you might be able to steel man their argument by helping them through the fallacy. Uh, sometimes, like some portion of it is fallacious, but it might not be a super important part. Maybe you can just kind of like note it and move on. That's fine. Uh, but if you're not careful, it's very easy to get wrapped around the axle like hunting for fallacies and kind of miss the actual argument, which is the more important part, right? So don't do that. And we're going to try not to do that here. Anyway, (laughs) let's (laughs) go ahead and jump on in. So there's 10 questions. Uh, He has a little bit of an intro, which we're going to skip, and then we'll get right here into the questions. So he goes 10 to 1 for whatever reason. I promise we're not starting at the end. I don't know why he does that, but it doesn't matter. Anyway, question 10. How do you get something from nothing? How do you get something from nothing? You could ask, why is there something rather than nothing? But the fact we have something raises the question, how do you get something from nothing? Physicist Lawrence Krauss is an atheist who wrote a book called A Universe from Nothing. But like other atheists, when you dig deeper, you find out that nothing doesn't really mean nothing. Nothing really means something, which raises the question, why call it nothing? So, right, so <clears throat> there's a lot of things going on here. He 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 goes on describing Lawrence Krauss's position and reading from his book. A uh, few questions. First of all, what do you mean by nothing? So I've actually read Lawrence Krauss's book. And I don't know if this gentleman has. I suspect not. Because Krauss actually goes through a, a long portion of it talking about what does nothing mean and what he means when he says nothing, which is not what Alex here means when he says nothing. There's a little bit of straw manning there or misrepresenting Lawrence Krauss's position. But then again, he's also projecting that Lawrence Krauss is representative of all atheists too. That's also true. Which is not necessarily Definitely. the case. So, so just so people who aren't super in tune with uh, this like cosmological argument, which is what this would be, this would be talking about where the cosmos came from. Uh, their, our local universe started at the Big Bang, right? But nobody knows what caused the Big Bang. Many Christians want to assert that it was God, uh, like this gentleman here. 
some atheists think that, or well, not necessarily atheists, some people think that the idea of what came before the Big Bang is a meaningless question. But either way, uh, they posit maybe there was some energy and uh, you know quantum field fluctuation led to expansion, whatever. What they're not saying is that there was nothing in the sense of like nothing, nothing. Like when a philosopher says says nothing, he means there was no quantum fields, there was no energy, there's no matter. Nothing has no properties. It's, it's nothing. Yeah, it, it's nothing, <laughs> right. It has no property. Like space yeah. is not nothing. Space is empty, but there's properties to space. Space is a thing, right? right. Uh, and even the absence of space might still have properties. You might still have quantum fields or something like that, right? You might have something there, but nothing would have none of that, right? Uh, so I would say that we didn't get something from nothing. I would say because nothing has no properties and nothing can come from nothing, then there was never nothing. Right. And I would say, I don't know, uh, which is a acceptable answer. But also the question assumes, like you led to, that there was there was nothing, or we think there was nothing before, right? So, Which is not something any cosmologist that I'm aware of posits uh, right. there. So yeah, I would push back on this and just ask them, ask him, ask Alex, how do you know, Alex, that there was nothing at any point? Like, where are you getting that information? So and even uh, he doesn't believe there was nothing before, right? He believes there was something which was like God, the waters so. of the deep or the or <laughs> yeah, God, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you might be able to get in the weeds and say, well, if there was nothing, would it have the property the property of being able to be worked on by God? I don't know if you maybe just. I'd probably just go the route of cosmology <laughs> if it were me, or just say I don't know and move on. So. Yeah, that's fine too. And, and yeah. again, and this is going to be a running theme. I don't know. It doesn't mean God. Yeah. Speaking of, because that's going to be relevant right here, let's go on to question nine. <laughs> Number nine, how do you get life from non-life? How do you get life from non-life? Scientists can study life, but science has no answer for how life sparked into existence. Listen to this article from Scientific American. This is the longest running scientific journal in the U.S. Scientists are so dissatisfied with conventional theories of life's beginning, they speculate that aliens came to Earth in a spaceship and planted the seeds of life here billions of years ago. This notion is called directed panspermia. Science has no idea how life sparked into existence. Now, to say it's happened somewhere else, you're not really answering the question or solving the problem, you're just moving the problem somewhere else because how did life spark into existence there if it didn't happen here? But you get the point. Number nine, ask the atheist, how do you get life from non-life? So, first of all, first and foremost, Scientific American is not a journal. Uh, it's not a peer-reviewed journal, it's a magazine. Uh, just, it's written, it's pop sides written to entertain. Uh, they do try to keep a level of rigor, but I had as one of my assignments when I was in engineering school, they wrote a article on nuclear power and boy, howdy, was it bad. Uh, <laughs> we, we, our assignment was to point out basically all the ways that this article was bad and it was atrocious. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily take everything that scientific American says as sure. if it were like cutting edge science, right? Right. Also, let's credit where credit is due. Uh, panspermia just moves the goalpost. So, which I agree, I agree yeah. completely. Uh, that's why nobody, even people who are promote or, and I don't know of anybody who's like seriously asserting panspermia, but even those who are aren't typically saying that solves the problem. Obviously, it doesn't solve the problem. I mean, obviously, a <laughs> it just it solves the problem for how it happened on Earth, just not. Right. There. How it happened globally, right? Yeah. So what he's talking about here is abiogenesis. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not a biologist, and to get a really good answer on this, you can go to another uh, channel uh, called Jackson Wheat. He's part of the group that I'm part of, The Science Friends. We'll put his link here somewhere up here, like real YouTubers. He's got a couple videos on abiogenesis and some ways it could have happened. So definitely go check out him for the better answer. The short answer is, uh, first of all, Life comes from non-life all the time. You know, if you eat something, you're taking something that's not alive anymore, at least 
usually when you eat it uh, and you're like incorporating it into your body. But that's not exactly what he means, right? Because he's talking about like there was no life at all. So for that, you've got things like the RNA world hypothesis where uh, th there's actually been a lot of work done on this topic in recent decades showing how uh, co biological compounds spontaneously form in conditions that we think are similar to what was in the early earth. And there's been some work showing how RNA could plausibly have come from those sort of soups. Uh, but again, Jackson Weed is a much better source. So go check him out for an answer. Yeah, I mean, essentially, we're all chemicals and life is just a chemical reaction. So in the right conditions with the right chemicals in the right place, boom, like, right. It's not and that hard to conceive of. If you if you look at the stuff that you're made of, the the elemental makeup of your body, you consist of like the top 10 most common elements in the universe. You know? So it's not it, the building blocks of life are <laughs> yeah. all around. We're not silicon based life forms. So <laughs> right. uh, another point though, is that even if like we didn't have biologists working on this, we just don't know. I don't know does not equal God, right? It's not, I don't know. Therefore I do know. And the answer is God, right? That's not how it works. I don't know. All that means is I don't know. Now, or I don't know yet. Or I don't know yet. Now, it may be that uh, abiogenesis is, in fact, violates some law of physics. It's impossible. It, I don't think it is. There doesn't seem to be any indication that it is, but perhaps it is. Then you might be justified in saying uh, there might be some other supernatural cause. But until then, you're just doing the same thing that Newton did when he couldn't understand or didn't want to understand really uh, the orbits of the planets. He assumed they had to be perfectly spherical, but his calculations told him they shouldn't be perfectly spherical. So he said, well, God must fix them, must, you know, tinker with them occasionally. I don't know, therefore God, but that's never been right in the past. So why should it be right now? Yeah. Also, I mean, so this was a common thing that I've noticed in these questions, but it, it kind of, plays on the idea of uncomfortability with an answer, right? So like there seems to be, he's uncomfortable with the answer. I don't know. So he has to fill it in right with God, obviously in this case, but yeah. Um, Having an answer is not necessarily a good thing. Like I wouldn't think it's a, it's not necessarily superior to substitute your ignorance with a bad answer. <laughs> Maybe ignorance is just the right place to sit, you know? Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Number eight. How do you get mind from matter? How do you get mind from matter? How did conscious human beings emerge from unconscious matter? Well, listen to atheist Richard Dawkins reflect on this. The universe could so on this. Let's not listen to atheist so Richard Dawkins. You guys can read. So we can put that up on the screen if you want to read it. He basically reads a big long quote from Dawkins. He does this a lot. Uh, but Essentially, what Dawkins is saying is that we are uh, just made of stardust, and uh, it's basically a cosmic accident that consciousness arose, is basically what the quote is saying. And Alex is saying, nuh-uh. <laughs> How could you get it that way? How could mind arrive from non-mind? This is the exact same question as the previous question, is just replacing how do you get life from non-life? How do you get... Anyways. Now... The only thing I can say in this defense is that the hard problem of consciousness is not something that we are going to solve. That's like Nobel Prize level uh, solution. So nobody is quite sure what consciousness is and how it arises, but it seems at least to me plausible that it's an emergent phenomena from brains. It, we don't know of any instance where a mind exists separate from a brain. All the minds we're aware of, ours, have a brain. And if you do something to the brain, the mind is affected. You know, if you take out yep. chunks of the brain or you, you know, stab it or hit it with electricity, the conscious experience of the person in question is altered. So that is at least circumstantial evidence that maybe there's, you know, maybe, maybe the mind is coming from the physical side at least. Yeah. And even when you think about like, if you're watching a, nature documentaries with David Attenborough, right? Mm -hmm. You see even the simplest forms of life have some sort of consciousness, even if it's really um, rudimentary, right? So it's not that hard to conceive that there would be some sort of evolutionary advantage to 
even if it's just stimuli to a certain I mean, input. We can't say for certain that any other being has a conscious experience. I can't even say that you have a conscious experience. Right. Yeah, the whole idea of philosophical zombies. Everybody else but you could just look like they have a conscious experience, but it really inside is just empty. There's nothing happening, you know. But that seems yeah. kind of silly. Uh, and experiments can show certain patterns of brain activity matching on to certain thoughts or feelings, even before the person is consciously aware of it. So you can, if you hook somebody up to electrodes and tell them to like push this button whenever they want, just whenever you feel like it, push the button. They can look at the brain activity and predict when they wanted to push the button. And it is before the person was consciously aware that they had made the decision to push the button. So, I mean, that's not necessarily a slam dunk, but it sure seems like there's something more going on than, you know, an invisible ghost running your brain like a flesh mat, <laughs> you know? Okay, moving <clears throat> right along, moving out of, we're going out of God of the Gaps and into a much, much better uh, argument. Number seven, how do you get design without a designer? How do you get design without a designer? Just watch any documentary on the wonders of the natural world and it's peppered with the word design because people see evidence of design everywhere. Some of our best technology came from something called biomimicry and that is people look at something in nature and say, wow, that's amazing. I wish we'd thought of that. And they copy it and they reproduce it. Do people really believe that these amazing mechanisms, things that our top tech people couldn't even dream of, all came about as a result, ultimately, of a random unguided mechanism. Number seven, ask the atheist, how do you get design without a designer? Jared, have you considered looking at the trees? Did it ever occur look, to you just look at the trees? Look at the trees, man. Um, <laughs> what about <all> babies? <laughs> what about babies? So we talked about this quite a, a bunch on this channel. Um, but just because somebody uses the word design to speak about something in nature doesn't mean it was designed. It just means they're using a word that we understand the meaning of, right? So like, right. You Humans can, constantly yeah. anthropomorphize things. Exactly. In the world. Uh, you might say that the tree decided to grow this way. Nobody thinks a tree like was like pondering, hmm, should I grow left or right? like that's nobody thinks that, right? Well, well I guess I, I'm not going to say nobody. Some people, somebody think that, thinks that, <laughs> but most people who say that don't actually mean that the tree is having a conscious discussion like we would experience it. It's just right. a, a shorthand to kind of quickly describe the situation. The same thing is going here. Uh, when they say that design exists in nature, they don't necessarily mean that some external thing did the designing. They mean that. Uh, things have a purpose. And again, purpose doesn't imply any kind of mind to it. Uh, they just fulfill a certain function. Yeah. Um, now, for so somebody that's... on the other side of this, you can go to uh, Reality Insights channel. Maybe we'll put a card up for his channel too. He he does endorse the idea of design, but he does a better job of explaining it than Alex does. So if you want a fair shake at the design argument, go check out his channel. Yeah, and actually we might post a link because Jordan and him had a conversation on our channel about this a while back too. So we could link that as well. But one thing here too is when he's using the word design, he's implying that there was an intentionality behind that design, right? Mm -hmm. And so... I think there's a disconnect here because for him, an unguided process means completely random, happened by chance, whereas that's not how evolution works. I mean, both biological evolution and natural evolution, all these, yeah. so. Uh, unguided does not equal random. Right. Like, I, if I drop a ball or a ball is dropped and it falls down, that's not random. It didn't. It's not just as likely to go up as down. Right? <laughs> that but would nobody, be random. <laughs> right. That would be random. But nobody like that. There's it's not doesn't mean there's an intention behind it falling mm -hmm. down. It's just that's the way the laws of physics work. Right. Same thing with natural selection and the way biological systems evolve. They evolve the way they do because the laws of nature and chemistry and selection pressures and other mechanisms that, again, biologists are better at explaining than we are. But uh, one great example of of design coming in nature uh, is actually the language of flowers and how it evolves. So flowers 
look pretty to us and they smell nice, but the reason they look pretty and smell nice is not for us. They don't do it for our benefit. It's except the ones that we bred, you know, such that they did, but the ones that are natural, they didn't do it for us. They did it to attract insects and pollinators to help themselves. Right. There's no altruism there. At That's all. right. It's not, it's not <laughs> because they felt they, they felt they wanted to feel pretty. And interestingly, if you look at flowers with other spectrums under other spectrums of light, that we cannot see, but insects can, there are hosts of other kinds of patterns that are only visible to the people they're trying to communicate with. So this would look to maybe a naive observer like this had to have been designed. Like it's a language. They're, they can communicate things as delicate as I don't have any more pollen to give, you know, so stop coming here. Like an insect can understand. Yeah. Like how could that possibly come without somebody being behind it, right? How could it? How it could has it? to. Right. Case closed. <laughs> well, uh, basically, if you think about it, you before you had a flower, you had some plant, right? And they needed to get their pollen to other plants because they're reproducing sexually just like everything else is, right? So they can reproduce. A lot of plants can reproduce like on their own, but it's better for them. It's advantageous if you reproduce sexually. So one strategy is just to throw your pollen out into the breeze and hope it hits the right plant. That'll work. There are trees and plants that do that today, but it's not super efficient, right? Because you're going to lose... That's yeah, the shotgun method. Just right. blast it out there. You're yeah. going to lose a lot of pollen and not, it's not going to do a lot for anybody except, you know, coach stuff and make it uh, nasty. Right. So uh, imagine that for some reason, uh, this plant has nectar or something. It has something that a, a bug wants. Bug gets on it. Right. And the bug gets covered in the pollen because it's there and it flies around and it's like doing this, all the plants. And just because it happened to get some pollen, it hits another plant. Boom. Now that's a way faster, more efficient method, right? Okay. So you have two plants all at the same time, one doing shotgun and one focused with just. Right. And boom. so the plants that were most likely to attract bugs, the bugs just happened to be, for whatever reason, the bugs were more attracted to that plant. They will do better than everyone else. And so the ones that aren't as good die away. Well, then the next generation happens and the ones that are a little bit better at just because randomly they, you know, not there's mutations and things like that. They developed a little bit better of a method of attracting plants and so on and so on and so forth. And eventually you get to very complicated systems just from the fact that the the plants that are more attractive to insects do better. That's the only right. force you need. And you can get all kinds of complex behavior from that. And that's just one example. <clears throat> there may be other pressures. It's, a lot of times we like to simplify this to like where we have example a or like a and b work together and that's how it does but a lot of times you may have multiple inputs and a lot of different pressure selections right so you have a b c d and e but because we're human uh it's hard for us to grasp how all these systems work together to affect one another and we can't see all the puzzle pieces right so uh, that's why people get paid lots of money to go to school to research and study all that stuff but right. if you're just a layman and you're like there's no way this could have happened naturally. Um, well, you probably didn't look into it very hard, but. Another thing that struck me about this, he said, uh, he was talking about biomimicry. And so like, look how amazing these, these machines are. They're way better than anything a human could come up with. Therefore it must be designed, which it's weird because they'll say that. And then like in the next breath say, and look, this thing in nature looks very much like the thing we designed. Therefore it's designed. Well, which is it? Is it, designed by god because it's better than what we come up with or is it designed by god because it looks like what we come up with which is it you know it seems right. like you can't have it both ways or if you're trying to have it the one way like you know humans copy this natural design because it works so well well maybe we just copied it because it works well not because it was designed and we're like well the idea is nature couldn't possibly design something no, yeah. well which is a silly why not why couldn't nature do that and no, nature we, has a lot of examples of things that are not designed well, too. Yeah, that's that's another excellent point. If you want to take credit for the things that are designed well, you should also take credit for the things that aren't designed well. Now, uh, again, our friends at Reality Insights would say, well, you don't know the design parameters that God is using. Maybe they're designed to his specifications. But I would submit there are some things in nature that are just bad. Like, if a God is, is such that... Like, for instance, uh, you have to eat oranges or fruits of some sort to get vitamin scurvy. C. Scurvy. And if you don't, you'll get scurvy, right? 
But that's not the case for most mammals. They produce their own vitamin C. Yeah. And we have the gene to do that. It's but just it's, turned off. It's broke. Uh, yeah. In us and some of our close great ape uh, relatives, it's broken. It doesn't work. That Where's the benefit of having this broken gene in our gene pool? It's do it, serving no purpose. And all it's doing is making it harder for us to survive. Why would that happen? Well, I mean, the evolutionary answer is one of the answers, possible answers, is that at the time this mutation happened, our uh, ancestors had a vitamin C rich diet. So it didn't matter. Like, it, it who cares if it's broken? We, we were, were getting, getting plenty of it. And the exactly. ones who had the bad genes were able to procreate and keep yeah. moving on, right? No problem. And then by the time it became a problem, well, evolution isn't smart. Evolution doesn't look forward. Evolution doesn't say, oh, well, you know, it's not useful now, but this vitamin C gene might sure come in handy in 10,000 years. Like, that <laughs> doesn't care about that. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you want to see another funny example of, uh, well, maybe not funny. I think it's funny. But koalas. So I'm going to post a link to a video of koalas and you're going to see some great examples of design. So koalas in the rain. No less <laughs> given. All yeah. right. <laughs> Number six. Number six. How do you solve the problem of evil? How do you solve the problem of evil? The problem of evil is normally raised as the greatest objection to belief in the existence of God. But rejecting the existence of God doesn't solve the problem. It causes an even bigger one. If there is no God, there is no evil. This is just straight equivocation, right? That's what this is. Yeah, I get where he's trying to go to, right? So, <clears throat> the, so the idea is like ultimate morality. You have to have a basis for it to call it evil in the first place, right? But I guess, but that's like a different argument. So the argument yeah. he's referring to, the problem of evil argument is basically uh, <clears throat> that there is suffering in the world. There's at least some level of unnecessary suffering. A good being that ha was omnipotent and omniscient, you know, ha was all-powerful, all-knowing, would not allow unnecessary suffering. So, like, what gives? That's the problem of evil. And <clears throat> importantly, it's not an argument against all gods. It's only an argument against good gods. God could just be, you know, kind of a dick. And yeah. then be fine. Yeah, no problem. Uh, well, so he's trying to he's trying to flip the script, though, right? Because right. this is normally an argument against Christianity and the gods. Yeah. It has to be because if it, you don't have a god, there's no problem. Because exactly, <clears throat> there's like why is why is there evil in the universe? Because the universe doesn't care about us. Who cares? Like, <laughs> of course there's evil. Of course there's suffering because you know it's an uncaring universe and you're insignificant. That'll come up next. Uh, but so what he's actually doing is he's saying. You can get rid of the problem of evil, but now you have the problem of morality, which is a separate argument. Exactly. Right. And, and also, notice that he keeps going to Dawkins. Uh, Dawkins is not an authority on anything philosophical or theological. He's a freaking biologist, right? So, like, that's yeah. not who I would be reading about the problem yeah. of evil. Like, exactly. Like, I mean, for the <laughs> design parts, sure, talk to Dawkins. Yeah. But if you're talking about the problem of evil, maybe you should go like read some philosophers. Maybe they, they'd be the ones you should talk to about yeah. philosophy, you know? Uh, he, he's using Dawkins because he's a big name, but it's, yeah. not, it's not a good source. But basically, the argument for morality goes uh, without God, there can't be morality. There is morality. Therefore, there's God. That's the basic format, uh, which I don't agree with at all. Like, I don't see why you can't have morality without a God. I don't see why uh, having a god makes it better but let's say it's right but let's say he's right you can't have morality without god you know what that would mean that that mean maybe there's no morality maybe that's i mean yeah, that, that yeah. might suck you might not like it that doesn't mean it's false you know <laughs> or maybe there's no objective morality but we have like subjective local moralities and all that kind of stuff right so right that's a question for another uh episode but essentially the answer to this is that doesn't mean that god exists it doesn't follow as a non sequitur. How can life be insignificant? How can life be insignificant? I used to be a chaplain in my local high school in Scotland. And I remember one day sharing this with the students in the high school. If there is no God and we live in a godless universe, every student is simply a speck in a vast universe. Every student is utterly insignificant. Here's the irony 
schools teach every student is valuable. Every life is significant. I applaud this. We need to share this with young people today. But the fact is it doesn't follow from a godless worldview. And atheists have to own it. According to atheism, you are a speck. You're not special. Number five, ask the atheist, how can life be insignificant? I don't want things to be insignificant, therefore God. If if this is true, I would feel icky, and I don't want to feel icky, so... Yeah. <laughs> like, so what? I don't care. Like, like yeah, exactly. This, this is nothing more than an argument from personal preference. Yeah. That's all it is. This is an argument from, this is an argument from consequences. Yeah. This is the consequence of this being true. I don't like that consequence. Therefore, therefore it's, it's not true. Yeah. Which is just silly. Uh, yeah. I, I would actually agree if you're going to zoom out to the cosmic, like entire universe scale. Yeah. Our life is completely insignificant. So I don't live on that scale. I live on this scale down here, you know? Right. So I guess the question to us as an atheist is how can life be insignificant? And I think the idea for somebody like this is that when they look at life, they find significance in it. And they're asking us, how can we say that it's insignificant? Um, which is a little bit different question, but I don't. I they mean, care. maybe like, they could ask, like, doesn't it bother you, perhaps? That right. Maybe. And some atheists might be bothered by it. I don't know. I personally am not. But uh, maybe, it, maybe it does bother you. I don't know. None of that means that – none of that gets you any closer to God. No. Uh, the, the only way I could see it could possibly, just to steal me as much as I can, is we have this feeling of significance. And so maybe we, we could assume that's reflecting some kind of objective – reality and so we explain that uh but i don't find that compelling i don't see why like pond scum might think it's significant that doesn't mean it and maybe it is significant to pond scum you know it doesn't mean it's significant to me i, I don't know it doesn't seem <laughs> yeah well but that, that's an easy one i don't care that, that's <laughs> yep, my answer <laughs> i don't care yeah <laughs> uh, speaking of things we don't care about number four how can life be meaningless how can life be meaningless if you mention that according to atheism, life is meaningless, an atheist will quickly respond, my life's not meaningless. So I want to clarify, I'm talking about according to atheism, life is objectively meaningless. It can mean something to the individual, but I'm talking about the bigger picture. Meaning is just an illusion. So meaning is an illusion. And then actually I'm going to skip forward because he talks a little bit more. He, he basically quotes a very lengthy quote by Bertrand Russell. If you want to hear it, you can listen to the full screen. We'll have, of course, a link to his thing, but then he goes on. Ultimately, life is meaningless. Death is inevitable. This entire universe is destined for oblivion. Everyone and everything will be forgotten and mean absolutely nothing. Here's the rub. If life is truly meaningless, why can't we live like this? Why do we hope for so much more? We expect life to be meaningful. We need life to be meaningful. We do whatever we can to find meaning in our life. Number four, ask the atheist, how can life be meaningless? There's a lot that he just said there, which you're peeling that onion back, right? It's so. all right. Uh, so my first question would be, Alex, what do you mean by objectively meaningless? Like, what does that mean? Because as far as I can tell, meaning comes from minds, from from persons, right? And so uh, if you're a certain, like, so far as I can see, the only meaning that has any meaning is the meaning we give it, persons give it. You might argue that God gives some kind of meaning outside of us, but that's just begging the question. You're assuming that this God exists in order to instill your life with meaning. Uh, but that if you believe that, fine, but that doesn't get you to God because right. God is part of your premises, right? Uh, what I thought was funny, though, is he says right at the beginning, uh, you know, in atheism, your life is meaningless. Now, an atheist will say that they their life has meaning, and they do. And I'm like, well, then it has meaning. Like, there you go. Like, you just answered the question. How does that have meaning? Well, I think it's meaningful. Okay. Like, that's all it is. <laughs> yeah. But then he's like, but, it, it, but I'm talking about, you know, ultimate meaning. And so what he says, this one bothered me. He's like, on atheism, 
they believe, you know, that life has no meaning or whatever. Well, atheism really has nothing to do with meaning or non-meaning. Like, it, I could, can understand how you get there, but like, I mean, it might be a consequence of atheism if you sure. Think if you if you well first of all if you also accept naturalism which is not the same atheism does not necessarily entail naturalism uh there could be no gods but maybe some kind of supernatural dimension with wizards who knows whatever uh but cool. yeah it would be cool way cooler than the reality we actually seem to live in but uh let's let's just say that you're eschewing all of supernatural uh, effects and so um you could say that because there's going to be no supernatural. Everything will end in a million years. It'll be like you never existed. You know, that sort of thing. Maybe your life isn't meaningful from that standpoint. And again, I'd have to go back to our previous answer of like, so what? Who cares? Why should I care? Why should I care what's going to happen in a million years? I'll be dead. Like, yeah, I, um, I forget who it was that said this and I was actually, I should really remember this, but if I remember, I'll post it in the description. But there was an atheist who talked about the uh, like eating food and like like a never ending dinner party, you know. How's like when you sit down for a meal, you don't go, "Damn, this meal's gonna end," so I can't enjoy this, you know, whatever food you're gonna eat, right? right. You enjoy the food you're eating while you're eating it. The meal ends, it still had meaning, and then you go on with it. Same thing with life, and that's how we approach life, right? So, exactly, your life. Life may not, my life may not have any kind of cosmic meaning in a million years, but it has meaning right now to me and the people that care about me. And that's all I need. So yeah. my life may not have the meaning that Alex wants, but that doesn't mean it has no meaning at all. It just means it doesn't have the kind that he wants. Yeah. And this is very similar to the last question about significance. I mean, they're very closely tied together, but I don't care if my life doesn't have ultimate meaning. I don't, it doesn't bother me. Nope, doesn't bother me in the slightest. So, next, I don't care. This next <laughs> one doesn't bother me either. Number three, how can there be no human freedom? How can there be no human freedom? In a world without God, there is no human freedom. If the physical world is all there is and we're just a bunch of physical stuff, we are determined by nature and nurture, by our genes and our environment. Just like any complex machine, we will do whatever we are programmed to do. Now, we can understand the influence of nature and nurture. We're influenced by our genes. We're influenced by our environment. And yet we understand what it is like to choose, to still make choices. In fact, sometimes we choose to go against the flow. But according to atheism, every action is determined by forces outside of our control. Freedom is an illusion. Listen again to Dawkins, who pointed out everything that we do, we're just dancing to our DNA. Number three, ask the atheist, how can there be no human freedom? First of all, not every atheist believes in hard determinism or, you know, so blanket picture there. Not every theist believes that we have free will either. So, um, so when he says free will here, he's talking about libertarian free will. Correct. And that doesn't have anything to do with the political party of uh, pseudo-republicans known as the libertarians. It is talking about having free will unshackled to, to any outside influence. Basically, there's, there's no other thing that's influencing your decisions. You and you alone are choosing whatever. And that requires... Uh, that we don't live in a deterministic universe. But to all appearances, we do live in a, in a deterministic universe. Or at least there is some like quantum level of randomness, but that's also out of my control, so it doesn't really help. You know, right. It may as well be determined for the purposes of this. Uh, so a couple things. First of all, even those who accept hard determinism don't necessarily think that we, that means we don't have free will. Uh, Daniel Dennett is a good example of a philosopher who uh, would be called a compatibilist, who thinks that if we basically, yes, we don't have libertarian free will, but we have another sort of free will, and we just have to kind of change how we're thinking about free will, uh, which might be kind of ducking the question a little bit, uh, but in any case, it may, but it may just be that we don't have free will. Maybe he's right. Maybe this feeling of free will that I have is an illusion. Okay. I want to believe I have free will. Therefore, God exists. Yeah, 
I would feel icky if this was true. <laughs> Therefore, it's not true. Uh, you know, I'll go further, though. Under most conceptions of God, or sorry, under the like mainstream tri-omni conception of God in Christianity, I don't think they have free will either. I think they are arguably less free than under they would be under an atheist regime. And this is because this God is said to be a creator God. He's supposed to have made everything, right? From the foundations of the earth, he saw you in your mother's womb. He, he knows everything that's ever going to happen. And he knew it prior to creation, okay? And he's so he's omnipotent. He can make any version of the universe he wishes. And he's omniscient. He knows what the consequences of all those decisions will be. So if he creates universe A, then Jordan is born at this minute and he goes to this school and these sort of things happen. But if he does a very slightly different universe B, then my life is different. By virtue of the fact that he chose universe A and not universe B, he has, in essence, chosen all of my decisions for me. He has determined the right. outcome from this. My, my future is just as determined under that uh, sort of universe as it would be in a universe without God entirely. Now, there are answers to this question. There are other ideas in theology that basically take properties away from God. Like maybe he has limited omniscience when it comes to your free will or things like that. But uh, if you want to go with a straight up, like the pew level conception of God, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, then I don't think you have free will either. Does that mean God doesn't exist? No. no. You might just, God might exist and you might not have free will. I mean, it has some implications. If he's, if he's going to throw you and light you on fire because you've made a choice that he <laughs> really made a while ago, you know, that's, that's not so cool, but. Well, there are Christians who believe that, right? So we have, we're pre predestination and there are the elect. Uh, so yeah, there are Christians who will unflinchingly tell you, yes, you were created by God specifically so he could torture you, you and that's his right. And also he's good. And I'm like, eh, what? things don't seem to fit together. You know? <laughs> yeah. But uh, how can there be no human freedom? Um, I don't think we have freedom and I don't care. Yep. Doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> Number two, how can there be no human identity? How can there be no human identity? This is one of my favorites. According to atheism, when a human being is just a bunch of physical stuff, there's no continuity of human identity through physical change. In other words, because your physical body is always changing, you're not the same person from one moment to the next. So, and he goes on to read yet another quote from Richard Dawkins, I'm pretty sure, uh, about it. But this is basically the ship of Theseus problem, right? Uh, if the ship of Theseus, for those who don't know, uh, you imagine Theseus goes on this boat in Greece and he goes and has adventures and like along the way they hit a rock and they like they replace some planks, you know, and they right. go to a port and some people leave and new people come on and they go through all these adventures and stuff. And over the course of their journey, every single plank, every single nail and every single crew member is replaced over time. And then they come, the ship comes back to port. Is it the, still the ship of Theseus? Is it still the same ship? No single part of it is the same, but it still has the same identity. How does that work? I used to be a big baseball fan, still am to a certain extent, but I've lost interest in the past couple of years. However, I always considered the Det Detroit Tigers my team. They were always the Detroit Tigers, but they had many players come and go, managers come and go, but they still maintained that identity of the Detroit Tigers, right? But they're not the same team, though. So, so this is a pretty deep question that uh, a lot of philosophers have wrestled with, so I'm not going to pretend like we're going to solve the problem of identity here. But the takeaway, I think, is it's not as simple as your constituent pieces are different, therefore you don't have the same identity. Um, it seems at least as plausible that uh, your identity derives from like the sort of shared continuous experience that is passed along from moment to moment, even if the constituent parts are not always the same. They tell a cohesive story, a cohesive whole with cohesive memories. And so uh, that is what it means to have identity. And that, if that is the case, if that is what identity means, then you're just as likely to have identity under an atheist worldview than as you are under a theist one. Doesn't, like, who cares, you know? Yeah. So this is another example of a, of a very interesting question, one that is worth digging into, but one that doesn't lead you to theism at all.
yeah, the answer to this question doesn't mean there is or is not a God. So, right, a worthwhile question to, to ask, but it's not yeah. the question. It's a, it's a great conversation if you partake in any substances and you want to, you know. Right, definitely get drunk and talk about identity. Yeah. All right, here we are, the big one. And we arrive at number one. Here's number one. How can there be no basis for rationality? How can there be no basis for rationality? According to atheism, our, ba our brain evolved as a survival mechanism. It's purely pragmatic. It was built to survive. It wasn't designed to tell the truth. In other words, every atheist who defends atheism is effectively sawing off the branch they're sitting on. If human, if human rationality emerged from irrationality, there's no basis for human rationality. Okay. So, so again, atheism, naturalism, evolution, like while they're related, they're not the same thing. And atheism doesn't have anything to say to a certain extent about emergent properties of minds and rationality, right? That said, just taking for what he, he's trying to convey, uh, he's basically getting at the idea that our evolutionary senses were uh, developed by evolution to promote procreation and passing on our genes and not necessarily get to truth. So Alex didn't come up with this out of whole cloth. This is an argument that has been made by other theists that our senses were developed through the process of natural selection, through evolution, to enhance our well-being, our fitness, but not to give us truth. And so we shouldn't rely on them to give us truth because that wasn't what they were designed for. So we have basically no basis on which to believe the things that our senses and our rationality and our mind tell us so maybe but here's the thing we live in an actual universe reality is real that's like a baseline assumption that i make you know i can't prove that reality is real i can't solve the problem of hard solipsism maybe i am a brain in a vat or in a matrix or whatever but i i'm forced to to live in the reality i find myself in so i'm just gonna as like a basic assumption, assume that reality is real, okay? Going with that, then if my senses did not usually give me good enough descriptions of reality, if my rationality didn't give me good and lead me to making good enough conclusions, I wouldn't live very long. Right. Right? If I, if I thought, my, if my mind was such that I thought leaving out of the second story of my house was just as reasonable as leaving out of the first then I'd break my leg. Like my nature would tell me I was wrong, you know? <laughs> and so if my senses were so unreliable as to be no guide to what is actually real, what is, what is real as in what corresponds to reality, then they wouldn't have survived. I wouldn't survive. They wouldn't, evolution wouldn't have given them to me. Right. So this argument may or may not be fallacious, but a screwdriver was designed to drive screws. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't hammer a nail with it, <laughs> right? Um, and just because it wasn't designed to drive screws doesn't mean that nails don't get hammered with screwdrivers. So like, even if our rationality wasn't designed to come to like ultimate truth or, you know, do all that stuff, we can still use the, the rationale that we have, all of the intuitions that we have to come to kind of some understanding of truth and reality as we see it. But more importantly... I think that a feeder for this argument is our senses aren't perfectly reliable. My senses screw up all the time. You know, look at optical illusions. You see in the one that's like the bowl of strawberries that all look gray or look red, but they're not red because your brain knows, oh, strawberries, those are red, but they're actually gray. Or like right. this color and this color, they look black and white, but actually they're the same color. You know, your brain yeah, you screws do, up. You do that all colors, the time. I guess they go. Whoosh, whoosh, yeah, like... exactly. I, like, our senses are reliable so much that we can tell when they're not being reliable and they are not reliable frequently, you know? So our senses and are flawed. We, we don't have perfectly reliable, trustworthy senses. We shouldn't rely on them without any question. You know, we should test them against the ultimate arbiter of truth, reality itself. How could God exist if our senses can't be trusted? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I guess the the... The driving thrust behind this argument is uh, you have no basis from which to reason if you don't have some kind of being securing your reason, I guess. I don't. 
but I, I see no reason why that would be compelling. I mean, maybe it's just my sloppy evolutionary design meat sack that's telling me this and I'm wrong. But so far as I can tell, uh, the laws of logic simply apply. You know, the laws of like non-contradiction and stuff simply is just the way the world works. And that's just the way it is. Why is it that way? I don't know. It doesn't seem like there's any other way it can be. Yeah, I mean, and so we've gotten this far. That was the number one question, which... I don't think it was the best question, but um, here we are 10 questions in and almost all of them really don't matter to me at all. So like, is there something about this man as a Christian? Oh, and by the way, did you notice he's kind of like a smarter version of uh, the banana man? Like, I guess it's his accent. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely the accident. <laughs> Look at the trees. At least he didn't Look pull out a banana. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No Ray Comfort bananas here. So, yeah, I'd say of those, question two, human identity, human freedom, just don't care. Life is meaningless. Don't care. Life is insignificant. Don't care. Problem of evil is a really good one uh, against God. The problem of morality, I think, is actually a reasonable argument to have, so that's fine. Uh, designer, I mean, I care about it, but it's not a good argument. Mind for matter, I don't know. Like, like, a lot of these were, I don't like the conclusion, therefore it's not that. Like, I don't like, it would feel icky, therefore it's not. A lot of these were, I can't imagine a way this would happen, therefore it didn't. Right. Or, I am i don't know, therefore I do know, and the answer's God. I just find it interesting that, you know, as an atheist, both of us kind of take the same view on this, but a lot of Christians would take the opposite view. So what... And we don't have time to answer this now. But what is it about us that makes our views on these questions completely different? Like, that's something to ponder. That's an interesting question. If you are a theist watching this, please let us know in the comments below why we're wrong. Why is it our biases are, like, blinding us to the obvious <laughs> truth uh, elucidated in these questions? Uh, make sure you hit the like if you liked it. Hit the dislike if you didn't. Uh, and subscribe if you enjoyed us content. There is another uh, video done by the same channel where he answers these questions as a follow-up to this top 10 answers that uh, to the very questions that he just asked. He explains why God provides a sufficient answer to all of them. So if people are interested, we'll tackle that one too. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure they're looked, riveting. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's great. And, you know, we'll be converted by the end of it. Uh, but until then, until we're future Christians, remember, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace out.